birthday. We got a lot of stuff done around the church, and we're so glad that each of you were willing to come and to serve in that way. We've been in the middle of a series where we've been looking at the vision of Family Life Church, which is to love God, love people, and love Warsaw. And we're going to continue that this morning. When Jesus walked on earth, he was surrounded by all kinds of people. He was surrounded by his family. He probably had Mother's Day like we did a couple weeks ago, maybe. I don't know if Hallmark had that going back then or not. But um, He interacted with people at the market. He probably interacted with people in his father's carpentry business. He interacted with all kinds of people. But for three years, he spent probably the majority of his time with his disciples. He spent time with them, teaching them. His disciples watched him teach all kinds of other people. His disciples watched him do miracles. His disciples were there when he met the woman at the well. His disciples were there when he healed the two blind men. His disciples were there when he looked over the city and was moved by compassion. His disciples spent a lot of time with him. So it's reasonable to believe that his disciples were probably the most influenced people on earth by Jesus. They spent the most time with him. And they gave everything they had in their life to follow them. A lot of them gave up their jobs, their careers, to go and to follow Jesus. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. And how did the disciples respond in that time? They responded by each one of them in one way or another, literally giving their lives, laying their lives down. They died seeing this message, the gospel message that Jesus was preaching, continue. During the last five years or so of my grandfather's life, uh, it seemed like everywhere we went, he was wanting to tell someone about Jesus. It didn't matter if it was a waitress at a restaurant, he might stop her and pull her aside and say, do you know Jesus? It might be a doctor who's supposed to be giving him advice and talking to him about some of the health stuff that he had going on, and he'd pull a doctor aside and he'd say, when's the last time you talked to God? He really misses talking to you. I could be trying to check out with him at Walmart to get some stuff that he needed, and he'll be turned around talking to the lady behind him. Do you know Jesus? It was like the closer he got to the end of his life, the closer he got to leaving earth and going to heaven to be with Jesus, the closer he got, the more intense he got about making sure everyone he knew knew about Jesus. He didn't want anyone under his responsibility, anyone that he bumped into, for him to have to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I didn't take the opportunity to tell that person. He wanted to tell every person he could. We're going to look at Luke 15 this morning. In Luke chapter 15, there's three stories that Jesus tells. And each of these three stories has four similar components. They all have loss. Something or someone is lost. Then they have the search for that thing or person that is lost. Then we have the recovery of that thing or person that was lost. And then we have joy. Luke 15.1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So this is one of those stories in the Bible that we really have to understand the backdrop of the story to understand it. So we have, first we have two groups of people. We have sinners and tax collectors. Sinners are kind of self-explanatory. They're people who were sinning in their life and enjoyed sinning with their life. The tax collectors are a little bit of a different group of people. 
at this time, Rome is the most powerful empire on earth. In fact, Rome ruled all of the known world at that time. And the way that they were going to maintain and keep their power was through taxation. So they were going to raise money through taxes to be able to build their armies to keep their power. But the way that they raised taxes was a little bit different and unique. They would take the different regions and they would break them up into provinces and then they would have auctions and these guys called publicans, not republicans, but publicans, would come and they would bid on this tax. And then once they won the bid and they won the tax, they would pay the tax and then they would have the full authority of the Roman government backing them to go and collect that tax. And then anything they collected beyond what they bid would be their profit. So let's say they looked at the Valley of Warsaw and they determined the Valley of Warsaw, that province, the tax burden for that area was a million dollars. So they put it up for auction and all these publicans are bidding on it. We'll say it bids up to 1.1 million. Then that publican wins the auction. He has to pay the Roman government the 1.1 million dollars. Then he has the authority to go to every person who works in Warsaw and tax them based on how much they make. And then anything he makes beyond the 1.1 million, anything more that he collects beyond the 1.1 million, would be his profit. Now, as it turns out, in those days, tax collectors were some of the wealthiest people alive because these tax collectors so many times collected more than their fair share of taxes. So the common people hated the tax collectors. The tax collectors' only friends were other tax collectors. And there wasn't a whole lot that people could do about it because if they didn't pay the tax that the collector required them to pay, then they would just simply be thrown into jail. Luke 15, verses 1 through 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So the tax collectors and sinners, the truth is, they don't really like each other. The sinners are paying taxes and the tax collectors are collecting their taxes. But the Pharisees and scribes muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So now we've got four groups of people. We've got the sinners and the tax collectors and the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees represent the religious authority. The Jewish people believed that the Pharisees, that God was the final authority in their life, but right after God was the scribes and the Pharisees. And then the scribes also were allowed to write legal documents. So this is like a super powerful group of guys. And they're not a big fan of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're not a big fan of Jesus because they consider him to be a wild rule breaker. Because as it turns out, Jesus was a wild rule breaker. Jesus was always breaking rules, but he was never breaking God's rules. Jesus was a man who was under God's authority. But he was breaking the scribes and Pharisees' rules. They would take the rules from the Old Testament and they would add more rules to them and it became a huge burden on the people. So Jesus was often breaking their rules because he knew what God wanted him to do. So a good example of that is you're, the, one of the rules was you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. But Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And the, and the scribes and the Pharisees got mad at Jesus because they said he worked on the Sabbath but he knew that the heart of the Father wanted him to heal that man on the Sabbath. So Jesus was breaking the rules. So we have this tension between sinners and tax collectors that are hanging out with Jesus 
and the scribes and Pharisees, they don't like it. Then in verse 3, we have this parable. And this parable does two things. The first thing that it does is it brings confrontation. A parable is designed to bring confrontation to the person that Jesus is sharing it with. It's designed to bring the person to a point of decision, to say, this is the truth, this is what I'm telling you now, what are you going to decide about it? And the other thing that a parable does is a parable shows some of who God is. So here we are, Luke 15, 3. We got the scribes, the Pharisees, the sinner, the tax collector, and this tension between this group. And then the scribes and Pharisees are muttering under their breath, talking about Jesus, saying, who is this man that welcomes sinners and eats with them? Jesus hears this, and Jesus responds with this story. Luke 15, 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. So suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And then when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So in this story, people are represented by sheep. The shepherd represents God himself. And Jesus in this story is putting everyone in their proper place. During this time, there was a super segmented societal hierarchy. And at the top of that hierarchy was Pharisees and scribes. They're like the top rung of the ladder. And then the absolute bottom rung of the, lep- of the ladder is a leper. And then just one step above a leper is a shepherd. Shepherds were considered cheaters. They were considered dishonest. Their testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. Oftentimes, shepherds were referred to as unsophisticated, uneducated, dirty nomads. So in this day, this is what shepherds are. So Jesus is about to tell a confrontational story. Hasn't even gotten to the first of three stories. It's the first line of the first story. He looks at the scribes, he looks at the Pharisees, and he says, suppose you're a shepherd. And these Pharisees lose their mind. Jesus just insulted them in such a horrible way. They're like, their heads are spinning. They're like, suppose I'm a shepherd? Maybe you didn't realize my robe. Maybe you didn't realize my hat and my shoes. I am not a shepherd. Jesus hasn't even gotten to the confrontational part of the story, and he already is throwing insults at these guys. These unsophisticated, uneducated, dirty nomads was how people looked at shepherds. And Jesus says, suppose you're a shepherd. Timothy Keller says, everything in Jesus' economy is upside down. If you want to be first, be last. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. And in the first line of his story, he's confronting the Pharisees. Then Jesus continues, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and you lose one of them. Don't you go after it? Now, Jesus keeps 
throwing insults. Jesus calls people sheep. In this day, sheep were considered dumb and stupid animals. It would be like Jesus calling one of us a pig. Jesus was confronting these people again. He was, bring, he was making them uncomfortable again, like, suppose we're sheep? Are you kidding me? Sheep are considered this because they're helpless. Domesticated sheep are completely helpless. They literally cannot live without a shepherd. This week I read a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. It's a phenomenal book. I had never read it before. I would highly recommend it. It was exactly what the title says. It was a shepherd who explained Psalm 23 in a way that a shepherd could only understand because I'm not a shepherd. I don't live the life of a shepherd. I don't interact with sheep every day. So I just, I couldn't understand some of the things that he was able to see in Psalm 23. One of the things that he said is that sheep are genetically dispositioned to pursue greener pastures. Their disposition to want more. Their disposition to want better. In fact, sheep will even put themselves in harm's way pursuing greener pastures. He said if a sheep looks up on a mountain and up on the top of the mountain it sees green pastures, it will leave and go pursuing those greener pastures, pursuing something better, pursuing something more, until all of a sudden the sheep finds himself on a cliff. He could be standing on a cliff that he can't get down from, he can't get up from, and the sheep will literally stay on that cliff until they pass out and fall and die if a shepherd doesn't go and rescue that sheep. He said a sheep might look down in a valley and could see greener pastures, and it could say, I want to go to those greener pastures, and it heads towards the greener pastures, even if that means on the way down into the valley, jumping into a hole, assuming they could get out the other side of the hole, only to get in the hole and find out they can't get out on their own. And they would be stuck in that hole, they would die in that hole, unless the shepherd came to rescue. What Jesus is saying here is that everyone, every single person, you and me included, are helpless on our own. We all need a rescuer. We all need a shepherd. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When you know that sheep are genetically dispositioned to pursue greener pastures, to want more, how powerful it is when David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I don't want greener pastures. In him is everything I need. I'm totally fulfilled in my relationship with him, and I trust him that if the pasture he gave me is what's best for me, I'm just going to stay right there. I'm not going to want anything else. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Another thing I learned about sheep this week, I learned a lot about sheep. I learned that sheep will not lay down unless they feel 100% safe and 100% secure. If they feel just the slightest bit unsafe, just 1% insecure, they will not lay down and rest. Because if there's a wolf or some predator coming, there's nothing a sheep can do to fight the, the predator off. There's nothing they can do to take care of themselves. They're just completely at the mercy of that predator. So if a sheep feels just the slightest bit unsure or insecure, they won't lay down. They won't lay down for weeks. 
They will be at the point of exhaustion, and still, if they don't feel safe or secure, they won't lay down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Sheep will still waters, as it turns out. I wouldn't have realized this without hearing the shepherd's take on this. Still waters are not safe waters. Still waters can get stagnant and they can get nasty and they can even be poisonous for sheep. And sheep will drink poisonous water, not knowing it will kill them until they die. So he leads me beside still waters means Jesus leads me, the good shepherd leads me alongside of the things that aren't safe for me. He corrals me in those times where I'm walking by something that's not safe for me to bring me to water that is is safe for me, water that's refreshing, water that will nourish me. He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me beside that which isn't safe to bring me to that which is safe. He restores my soul. Sheep, as it turns out, have an anxiety problem. Sheep are anxious creatures. Sheep need Prozac, but they don't give it to them. Sheep have an anxiety problem for real. It's almost as if we, let me say it this way, we have an anxiety problem. Maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not. This is being coined, the time that we live in right now is being coined the age of anxiety. We have an anxiety problem. We are anxious, we're unsettled about all sorts of things. And that anxiety, it hurts your soul. It takes a toll on your soul, whether you're aware of it or not. And Jesus says to the sheep that also struggle with anxiety, come and rest with me. Let me restore your soul. How many of you this morning could use a little restoration for your soul? Would you just come to the Lord today and say, Lord, would you restore my soul? Now, you and I can sometimes do some pretty sheepish stuff. We can pursue and chase greener pastures. We can chase after stuff that looks good and feels good. We have uh, shiny object syndrome. We see something that's shiny or flashy and it looks good. We want the newest, the latest, the greatest. We want all this stuff. We're always pursuing greener pastures. How many of you have ever in your life, don't raise your hand uh, because it would be all of us, How many of you have ever pursued something that looked good, something that felt good, something that looked like something you wanted or needed in your life, only to find yourself on a cliff looking around going, how in the world did I end up here? I I pursued this thing, but I didn't know it was going to lead here. I saw greener pastures, and I went after it, but I didn't know it was going to lead me here. My mom used to always tell me, Jonathan... Sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. How many of us have felt like that in our life? We chase something that looked good, something that felt good, and all of a sudden we find ourselves on a cliff or in a hole looking around like, I really made a mess of my life. I don't know how to get out of this place. I can't fix it. And we, in those moments, so desperately need a rescuer. We need a Savior to come and help us off that cliff or help us out of that hole. Jesus is trying to communicate that sheep can't save them 
in and of themselves. They can't save themselves on their own. We need a shepherd. We need a rescuer. I think this is a serious roadblock for us and for the culture that we live in. We don't want to admit there's anything wrong with us. We don't want to admit that we need something outside of ourselves. We love our autonomy. We love our freedom. We don't want to admit that there's something wrong with us and we need something bigger than us to come and to save us. I think we can see this played out in our lives uh, in the way that we use social media sometimes. We try and paint a picture of ourselves like our life is perfect. We try and paint this picture of ourselves the, the way that we want people to see us, but the truth is that's not really who we are. And then we end up feeling alone and like we don't actually have friends and people that know us because all they know is this image that we've presented. And then sometimes, sometimes what we do is we, we try and downplay our sin. We try and say things like it was a little white lie. Or sometimes something I see us do a lot is we compare ourselves to people who we think are worse sinners than we are so that we feel better about ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like that person. That person is a hot mess. Like, they've got a lot of sinning going on. I'm not doing too bad over here, you know? Or we say, like, at least I'm not a Nazi. At least I'm not, like, killing anybody, right? But in reality, when the Nazis were killing people, there was a bunch of people who just stood around and watched and didn't do anything about it. Why did they do that? Because they were more interested in self-preservation. I think so many times we're so guilty of that. We're more interested in our own interests. We're more interested in preserving ourselves. There's a man who I've read about quite a bit recently. His name was G.K. Chesterton. He was a theologian. He lived in London. He was an incredible man, lived an incredible life. He was alive at a time where the world was, in his words, coming apart at its hinges, coming apart at its seams. The world was a mess. It was a disaster. Interestingly enough, one of the things I read about that time was that people oftentimes said they didn't know if they wanted to have kids because they didn't know if they wanted to bring kids into such a broken world. They didn't know what kind of a world they were going to lead to their kids. That's interesting to me because I hear people saying the same thing about the time that we live in right now. Like, I don't know about this world I'm leaving to my grandkids, or I don't know if I really want to have kids because I don't know if I want to bring them into this craziness. Well, it was the same way in G.K. Chesterton's time. He was well-respected. He was amazing with his words. He, would not, he wasn't just respected in Christian circles. He was respected by everybody because the way that he was able to explain what was going on in the world and explain a solution was so appealing. A newspaper wrote to him and asked him if he would write a piece in the paper about what was wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton used to like to write with a quill because he said it slowed him down. And he was more contemplative in the way that he would write when he would dip the quill in ink and write. Even though he didn't need to, he would still do that. He sat there with his bottle of ink and with his quill, and he prepared to write. And he thought about what was wrong with the world. And he took his bottle of ink, and he, instead of writing with it, he dumped it on the page. And he wrote three letters, I-A-M. And he sent it to the newspaper. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with the world that we live in? I am. Because I only care about myself. 
It's not just G.K. Chesterton that could see that the problem with the world was that he only cared about himself. It wasn't just that time where people just cared about themselves. It was us, too. G.K. Chesterton said, The problem is me. I won't go tell my neighbor about Jesus. I won't walk down the sidewalk and find someone and tell them about the Lord because I'm more concerned with preserving myself. I'm more concerned with making a world that's comfortable for me. I'm concerned that we have tried to make a world that was more comfortable for us and not make a world where we were pursuing those who were lost. Then the Pharisees say that Jesus was friends with sinners. They were saying, we get that you're a faith leader, but what kind of a community are you trying to build? Are you really friends with sinners? Are you really friends with these ridiculous people? That's what the Pharisees were saying. And Jesus' answer was so confrontational. His answer hit the Pharisees between the eyes. Jesus answered the question of what kind of a faith community are you trying to build? Is I'm trying to build a faith community with the very people that you reject. He says, if they're not welcome at your church, guess what? They're welcome at mine. I get concerned that if the Lord were to come here today, he would look at us like the Pharisees. And he would say, I want to build a, a church. I want to build a faith community with the people that you guys don't really even want at your church. Luke 15, 7 is the central verse in this portion of Scripture. It says, There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have strayed away. There's three stories. I just told you one of them. And each three of these stories have loss, something that's lost, search for that which is lost, the recovery, and joy. Each one of us are actually in one of those stages in our life right now. We're either lost. Some of you might be here who are lost this morning. If you're lost, I've got good news. There's a, a God in heaven that's searching for you. Or maybe some of us are in the process of being recovered right now. Or maybe some of us are full of joy in our heart because the Lord actually has recovered us. What Jesus is doing here is he's laying a vision for what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God is a team of rescuers. It's a team of recovery specialists who are bringing people to Jesus. Jesus is inviting us to follow him in becoming a team of rescuers who are rescuing people who are lost and bringing them to Jesus. And I'm going to end my sermon this morning by inviting you to join the recovery team. But before I do that, I want to look at why in the world are we not already doing that? How in the world do we call ourselves Christians but we're not actually sharing Jesus with anybody. How in the world do we say we're followers of Christ, but we're not following him and sharing him with people, rescuing those who are lost? The way that I want to look at that is by looking at the last story in this chapter. It's the story of the lost son, or the prodigal son, as some people call it. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of that story. 
So there is a son who goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance early. What he was pretty much saying to his dad was, I wish you were dead so I could have my money now. His dad says, fine, gives him his money. He takes his money, and he leaves. And he blows his money on all the things that young men might blow their money on. When he had a pocket full of cash, he had a room full of friends. But as soon as the money dried up, those friends disappeared. So now he's alone. He's got no money. He's got no friends. His life is a mess. He's hungry. He doesn't have any place to stay. So he goes to a farmer. And he says, hey, would you give me a job? And he says, sure, I'll give you a job feeding my pigs. So the, the boy starts to feed the pigs. He's gone from the father's mansion to the pigsty. That's the place that he's spending his time now. As if that's not falling far enough, all of a sudden he's feeding the pigs, and the food he's feeding the pigs starts to actually look appealing to him. He's so hungry, he's like, maybe I'll just eat the pig food. He kind of wakes up and comes to his senses, and he realizes the servants in my father's house had a better life than I do here. This is what I'll do. I'll go back to my dad. I'll tell him, I know I already burned the bridge of being your son. I know I'm not worthy to be your son, but could I just be a servant in your house? So he decides that's what he's going to do. So he starts the, the road home, and he's reciting these words. that he me He's memorizing them so he can get them out of his mouth right to tell his dad, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son, but could I just be a servant in your house? What the son doesn't know is that the dad has been searching for him all along. Good story. Good story for you and me, who are all lost sons, as it turns out. So, the dad is looking for the son. The son, sorry. The son is coming down the driveway. The dad looks off in the distance and sees the son. Keep going, keep going. Um, so he sees the son. And this, the father comes running. Ma'am, I'm trying. <laughs> Failing. So the father sees the son and he goes running to him. The son's trying to get out these words that he rehearsed. But the father doesn't even hardly let him get the words out. You might cry too if you would realize that you were a lost son too. We forget sometimes. So he's trying to get these words out. His dad says, no, I'm not going to make you a servant. What we're going to do is we're going to get a robe and put it on you. Jeez. We're going to get a ring and put it on his finger. We're going to get sandals and put it on his feet. Thank you, Lord. So he says, let's go kill a calf and we'll, we'll have a party for my son. So they start the party. But the son wasn't the only son that the father had. The father also had an older son. The older son was off in the field working. And uh, he heard the music of the party. He thought, I wonder what that is. 
So he started coming home to see what the party was, and he ran into one of the servants and asked them what happened. They said, your brother who is dead is now alive, and your dad is throwing a party for him. And the son got angry. The older brother got angry. He's like, I'm not going to the party. So then the dad went, and he tries to get the son. And he says, your, your brother who is dead is now alive. Would you come and would you party with us? And he says, no. He says, I've been here all along, and this son of yours went and wastes your money on prostitutes, and now he comes back and you throw a party for him? You didn't even ever throw a party for me and my friends. And the son walked away angry. The older brother was more worried about self-preservation. He cared about his own party. He cared about his money. He cared about himself. Sometimes I think we have more of the older brother in us than we like to admit. We have more Pharisee in us than we like to admit. We've been around the Father. We're grateful that we've been rescued. We've enjoyed being around the Father. We love being in His presence. We love singing His songs on Sunday morning but our heart hasn't changed. We haven't started caring for the things that he cares about. We haven't started to love what he loves. You know, we're not sure we want this little church to change. I kind of like the people that are here. I don't really know if I want those people to come here. What would the youth group look like if those kids came here? I don't really know if I want it to smell like weed in the bathroom. I don't really know if I want people to smell like alcohol on Sunday morning. Would it even be safe if those people came here? We're more like the older brother and more like the Pharisee than we want to admit. Last week, Alex did an awesome job of talking about how we take the big, crazy goal of reaching the world for Jesus and boil it down to a simple step of pursuing one person. Pursuing our neighbor or our friend or our family or our coworker or our boss. I shared about how Jesus was confrontational in his story. Let me be a little confrontational with you this morning. If the gospel that we're prescribing to is more about protecting ourselves and less about rescuing the lost, then it's not the gospel that Jesus was preaching. It's not the gospel at all. And you and I are not followers of Christ. As I shared in the beginning of this message, each one of the disciples laid their life down. They literally laid their life down for this gospel. Peter and Paul were martyred. Andrew, crucified. Thomas was killed by soldiers. Philip, arrested and killed. Matthew, stabbed to death. Bartholomew, martyred. James was clubbed to death. Simon was killed after refusing to worship the sun god. John seems to be the only disciple who died of natural causes. And the only reason he died of natural causes is because he refused to die when they put him in a vat of boiling oil. He should have died. He just refused to because the message he was preaching was too important for him to die. 
They were so passionate about sharing the message that Jesus gave them that they literally laid their lives down for it. What I want to do is I want to give you a chance this morning to say, Jesus, I want in. I want to join the rescue team. I want to join the recovery team. I want to be a part of the vision of Family Life Church. I want to see this church change. I want those people here. I asked the ushers to hand out to you guys um, some papers. If you did get a paper, you could raise your hand and they'll, they'll get one to you real quick. And on those papers, there's, there's two spots. There's a spot at the top that says, who is your one? And then under it, it says, how am I going to reach my one? How am I going to pursue my, my one? And what I want to do is I want to give you just a few minutes with the Lord this morning. I want to give you a place to repent for the older brother in you and in me. Repent for the being Pharisees and scribes who say, I don't know if I really want those people here. Repent for being the older brother who enjoyed the presence of the Father, but didn't let it change his heart. And then I want you to ask God a couple questions. I want you to ask him, who is the one person he wants you to go after? Who's your one? So he would leave the 99 to go after the one. Who? It's awesome to come here on Sunday mornings. You all should come here, and I'm glad you did. Um, but we all have to leave this place. And when we leave this place, who is the one that we're going after? Maybe you say, like, I'm just in the place where God is recovering me right now. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm barely just there. That's okay. Turn around and go grab someone else so that no one's left behind. Who is the one person? Ask God, God, who is the one person you want me to pursue? And then under that, I want you to write down what you're going to do in the next 30 days, the next four weeks, what you're going to do to pursue that person. You can go ahead and just have some time with the Lord. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for being Pharisees and scribes. Forgive us for wanting to protect our little community. For wanting to keep our church nice and neat. for taking this church that was supposed to be on a rescue mission and making it a comfortable, neat, nice club.
Forgive us for forgetting that we were once lost sheep. Forgive us for forgetting that we were the lost son. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for enjoying what it feels like to be in your presence. But not letting you change our hearts. God, would you forgive us for forgetting what this was all about? Lord, I'm asking you to do something powerful in this church. And each person who hears my voice today, myself included, change us, God. Help us to turn off the stupid news, pointing at everyone else as being the problem. Stop blaming the president. Stop blaming other people, other groups, other organizations. And help us to realize the problem in the world is us. Self-centered, lazy, fake Christians. We'd rather have our own comfortability than go rescue those that are lost. Change us, God. God, we invite you to come and change our hearts. Not that, not that we should go out and just try a little harder to do a little better. God forbid. But that you would actually encounter us. That we would have such an encounter with you that we are actually changed. That we couldn't help but go tell people. Lord, we get so consumed with our own little stuff. Consumed with what we feel, consumed with the stuff that's going on in our life. And we forget that there's a world that you're sending us to.
Lord, as we go from this place today, I ask that this message wouldn't just be a message that was a series that we preached and then we moved on to the next message, but you would do something so powerful in each one of our lives that you would actually show up. Lord, that people would be driving to work on Monday morning and they'd have to pull over because your presence was so strong in the car. That we'd wake up before our alarm that was set to do devotions because we were so excited to have time with you. God, I thank you for moving in this church in the past. But if you don't come again, God, we might as well not do it. We need you, Lord. God, we invite you to come and change us. To come and do what you want to do. God, we don't want to stay the same. I'm going to go ahead and close the service and uh, release you guys to go. And I want to encourage you to find, find a way to connect with your one. Find a way to reach out to them. And we're just going to leave some music on. And if you want to continue to hang out here this morning for a little bit and ask God to change your heart, you're welcome to do that too. Have a blessed week.